Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A few things before we kick off. I want to draw your attention to the link that's at the top of the podcast right now. Is not the patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack one. It's Eventbrite for Podcasts for Palestine, which is taking place on the Sunday the 28th of January in the Sugar Club in Dublin. Uh, it's been set up in collaboration with the Tortoise Shack and the Fresh Batch podcast with Dean Scurry at the helm. Sincere thanks to Dean for doing all the running on this. I'm looking forward to a great night. Limited tickets are available now. Grab them as quickly as you can and hope to see lots of you there. There's also a ton of additional content out there on patreon.com forward slash tortoise including our podcast with Tyg Hickey on the very interesting 2023 that he has had. We did the uh, Northern Ireland Year in Review with Claire Mitchell and Stephen Baker. And as a short update from Zach Hanoya in Gaza, uh, a series of voice notes that we exchanged over the Christmas period. Uh, and that's exclusively there on patreon.com forward slash tortoise And the reason I keep saying that is because we want to keep going into 2024. And the only way that happens if some of you who are listening right now click that link and join us. Yes, the podcast is free, but that does not mean that it doesn't have a value. So if you're getting something out of it, please give something back. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do, and it makes all the difference to us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support, rating, sharing, reviewing, telling people where to find us. But do join us in 2024. We'd love to have you on board. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined in the podcast today by Dr. Meg Ryan, who is an assistant professor in global health and director of the MSc in global mental health in Trinity College, and also a practicing chartered counselling psychologist um, and part of the new group set up, Psychologists for Palestine. Um, Meg, I'm delighted to have you on Reboot today. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, this conversation, I hope, will be of help to our listeners. Um, I know many of whom are activists involved in the um, campaigns in solidarity with Gaza and Palestine um, some of them, you know, intimately connected, you know, some family members, uh, friends mm-hmm. who have both, um, who have died and are in, you know, horrific situations now. Um, mm-hmm. And then many, you know, like myself, who are trying to be activists, attend some protests, can't make them all, you know, are, are also campaigning on other issues like housing and um and trying to, you know, look after family and, and all that and live a life that just seems in so many ways disconnected um, from what is going on in Gaza and Palestine. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of talking through both how we can sustain ourselves, but also then, you know, the psychological impact of what is actually going on um, in Palestine and you know, the, the psychological lens on all of this, which I think opens up so much. Um, maybe to start with just your own thoughts on uh, reflections on some of that. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with what you said, particularly around maybe trying to balance multiple kind of competing um, responsibilities. Um, and I think that's something I, I would kind of like to to touch off. But maybe to start off with, I might just talk about kind of the importance of the language that we use actually mm. when when we discuss the situation and when we talk about what's happening in Gaza, um, you know, as a therapist, I think 
language is really central to therapy. It can really allow us to kind of unlock meaning and emotional experiences. And anyone who's been to therapy, I think, knows that feeling of finding kind of just the right word for something and how that really, um, you know, how that really feels. And it can open up an emotional experience that then becomes kind of live in the room with you. And I think when we talk about Palestine, it's also really important that we we find the right words to do that, not just because language kind of in isolation matters, but because language kind of influences emotion and behavior. And so I think, you know, when we see terms like humanitarian catastrophe or a clash or a conflict being used, um, these really fail to actually address the cause and the the roots of the ongoing violence. You know, humanitarian catastrophe implies there's no responsible actor. It's something that just happens. And similarly, when we talk about a war, that's not correct because that implies that there's two kind of powerful or equally powerful actors and I think that when we use this, this language and we frame the ongoing violence in that way, that really kind of obfuscates the context, which is Zionist settler colonialism. And I think that language also denies Palestinians the right to agency and the right to resist their own oppression. And it kind of frames, like I said, the relationship between oppressor and oppressed as equal. Um, and so I think using the correct terms, using settler colonialism and the resulting genocide and ethnic cleansing is important not just because they are the correct terms as per the genocide convention um, and the international criminal court but language you know the language we use can create a very different emotional experience for, for us and i think when we look at the western media they don't use these words they use kind of sanitized passive language and i think that blunts our emotional reaction to what's happening the word catastrophe is very different to the word genocide um, and I think when our emotional reaction to this is is blunted, our impetus to kind of act and react and care and protest and protect is also affected. And I think it can kind of keep us quite complacent. Um, it stops us from really engaging with or acknowledging, I suppose, the horror of the situation. And it is really a painful thing to confront. Like there is a, an emotional cost to really engaging with what's happening. You know, Palestinians are not, as it's being reported, dying or losing their lives. They're being killed. They're being starved. Um, and that's a difficult reality to confront. But again, when we think about therapy, so much of the process of therapy is finding the right words to express and um, access kind of emotional pain with the idea that, like, if you don't feel an optimum amount of pain, you won't act, you won't do anything. Um, and so I think when we don't use the right language and we use this passive language, it keeps our emotional activation kind of low enough that we don't do anything. And the reality is we, you know, as difficult as it is, we should be finding the situation painful. Um, we should be having really an extraordinarily strong emotional reaction to what's happening. That is normal and it's valid and we should be feeling it enough that we're kind of forced into action. Yeah, it's very interesting that the, the different ways in which you say there, the language around um this uh you know the the genocide um is being used in, in the mainstream media and i think you know where we're getting our you know sources of analysis of this and our sources of what's actually going on can be very influential because you can go on social media and you know you can go into i on palestine and instagram and you'll see the yeah. the absolute you know there's no language that can actually describe what you're seeing in terms of children um, you know, limb parts missing, you know, children shivering after, 
you know, explosions, the, the shrouds around the dead children. Um, and then, as you say, you go on and you go on to mainstream media and you see how this is described in these sanitized and clearly political ways to not yeah. acknowledge or accept um, the atrocities, the causation um, within it. And I think at level, there's two, almost two, sides to that one at the one the one level in terms of what you're saying there this the that for a lot of people and the question is you know who are being you know consuming their information from mainstream media it's sanitized and then of course you can think of the extreme of that within israel you know a population completely um you know many not aware of what actually is the reality it's been completely blocked by the israeli government um but then on another level you can look at you know those of us who are engaged and we're seeing this absolute horror and it's it's almost too much and you know i i you know watch it and then i turn around and i look at my 4 year old and i you know go into her at night and i i think about it and i see her and all you can see is the palestinian children who are dead and it literally it takes you over and you have to withdraw then for a bit yeah. and it's it's that kind of process of how do we sustain ourselves engaging with it while also then living this, as I said earlier, this life that's divorced as people who care about it and you feel guilty then, am I not engaged enough? And this horror that you have to shut off from, I don't, I don't know your thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, I think it is a really difficult thing. And like I said before, this is indescribably actually painful to to witness and to really actually understand at a felt level what's what's happening um but i don't think that means that we can't still find ways to look after ourselves but also keep moving forward like i think sometimes when things are very overwhelmingly painful like that we tend to kind of turn away or we mm. just age we, we 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 kind of drop out somehow emotionally um and i think like i said before like this is painful but it should be painful it's very normal to be feeling the level of of distress that people are feeling it's a very valid reaction to have to to witness something like this um you know i think it's important not to pathologize our 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 experience and our reaction to this um and i think if you're feeling angry you know that's good like emotions have a very specific purpose they yeah and um, they're really important kind of sources of information about what's happening in our environment and whether that's adaptive and promoting survival and growth or maladaptive and i think there is a certain level of adaptive anger and pain that we can confined in this um and i think it's ultimately it's what's important to do is to, to kind of share the burden of that not to be alone with this because it is i think too much to to bear on on our own i think if we can connect with other people um organize together grieve together like talk about what's happening like i said before um in therapy the kind of um, expression of emotions is very powerful and it allows you to process and work through some of that so talk to people about what you're feeling um share the burden if it's too much let someone else kind of hold it for you while you take a pause but don't stop don't turn away from it i think if we can you know ultimately kind of lean into our emotions and let them guide us we will do the right thing but it's doing that collectively um and maybe like you said maybe sometimes recognizing the limits of our own ability on a certain day or, or on a given week um, and sharing the responsibility with others but not letting it not getting cut off from our emotions, like not letting ourselves block out the pain, pain and block out the grief, um, because ultimately they're kind of adaptive, like correct things to be feeling about what's happening. 
And how do you feel about it? Um, it is overwhelming. Like I do often feel overwhelmed. Um, and I think sometimes in that, that sense of overwhelm, it's easy to feel a bit hopeless. Um, I think because what's happening is so on such a large scale, um, and it's easy to feel sometimes like our individual actions don't matter. Um, but I do try and push back against that feeling. I do try and recognize that while obviously I'm not going to be the, the ultimate solution to, to this problem, that there are things that I can do and that there are people that I can connect with, that there are resources and groups and communities that I can be a part of. Um, and also letting myself have space to, to feel that grief, like that it's, you know, it's, it's sad what's happening. It's, it's very deeply deeply sad and distressing and sometimes letting myself feel that to cry about that to kind of grieve that to, to process that emotion I think is really important and part of that as well is you know how do we talk to people around us you know wider society engage in you know people will be engaging in family events Christmas events even the notion of shutting off for Christmas feels completely wrong when we know this is going on. And and I know it's it's on daily life you have to do these things, but you know, is there ways we can do you think engage with family, particularly around this time, in some way acknowledging it? Um and you know, even at sometimes you know, laughing and, you know, celebrating at a time when this is going on, it just feels so wrong. What have you, you know, suggestions around that in terms of what might be very difficult, uh, what well not will be difficult um, for people to kind of manage, perhaps the people who completely are disconnected from it, you know, don't see it, don't understand it in the same way. Yeah, and I think that's a really difficult point. I don't have a clear answer on how to do that. That's something I'm figuring out. How do you yeah. engage people who have a different perspective? Mm. Do you? How do you kind of um, try to bring people alongside you? And I think one thing that's really important is that people don't respond to feeling kind of shamed or criticized. Um, you know, I think I, I think we saw that a lot when the riots were happening in Dublin and there was this very dehumanizing, very classist language being used to describe yeah. that were engaging. And that's so counterproductive because that's not going to kind of get those people on side and allow those people to see the perspective maybe that we're holding that, you know, immigration is not the issue here, that that people who are seeking asylum and, and refuge in Ireland are not the, the cause of the difficulties you're facing in your life. And so I think compassion is important. I think trying to understand the perspective of the other person, oftentimes a lot of our our sense of kind of um, anger or hatred or you know suspicion of the other can come from a kind of a fear um, yeah. or some kind of painful experience. And so I think being curious with the person, like why why is it that you hold that perspective? You know, what is it, what does it mean to you to kind of, to see it in this way, trying to be, you know, compassionately interested in it and curious. Um, and that like, can be very hard when you want to jump down their throat and go, you're wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> it totally can. And I think sometimes there's something to be said for taking a breath and walking away. Like if you're yeah. fighting losing battle, um, I don't think it's worth you kind of burning yourself I out. I mean, metaphorically now, not physically. Yeah. 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 A metaphoric battle. Um, you know, you're going to meet people who just are not going to, are going to be completely kind of ideologically opposed to you. And in that case, I think it's kind of protecting your own boundary and finding a way to, you know, not not to have that direct engagement with them. But I think, yeah, being kind of curious, staying compassionate towards people and trying to provide 
information in a way that's not kind of criticizing or shaming them, but, but offering it to them. Ultimately, all we can do is kind of offer people our perspective and, and hope that they come on board and come alongside us. And I think if you are going back maybe to a family situation where people have very different perspectives to you, it can be really difficult. And I think, again, going back to that sense of community, finding the people who agree with you on the matter, finding kind of, um, you know, resourcing yourself and finding courage and, and strength in, in a, a kind of a, a like-minded group. Yeah. It's interesting because the, I think it's so sort of, as I said, I was joking there about, you know, trying to, you know, feeling angry and just wanting to say you're wrong, you're wrong, that it is really important that those of us, you know, who are really engaged in this and, and active and that do see that, okay, there's so many people and we know there are so many people who aren't and, and alienating them is yeah. not going to actually achieve what no. the outcomes that we want to achieve, which are convincing and engaging a majority of people behind things like the ceasefire, you know, um, and broader issues around, you know, ending apartheid occupation and wider changing the system and change, you know, getting social justice. And um, so I think that's very interesting, that idea of the curiosity, you know, of actually just asking them and trying to understand. Of course, that will actually help us as well yeah. better understand how people are being taken into, for example, the far, the arms of the far right and that. So we do need to understand, you know, where people are coming from and think about that and engage with them as fellow human beings, as you say, with compassion. Yeah. And I think I, I wonder as well about um, trying to link this up to other kind of issues. Like I think ultimately what we're seeing here, there is a kind of an intersecting nature of all oppression. And while people maybe don't feel you know, there's sometimes can be that attitude of like, why should I care about this? I have my own kind of problems or my own struggles yeah, and um, that are equally or, you know, that are also valid. I think maybe being able to highlight to people that, you know, these things are all interconnected that, you know, for example, the kind of language, dehumanizing language we often see used about people in Palestine and particularly around men and our lack of compassion often for, for men in Gaza compared to mm. women. Yeah. You know, there's a parallel parallel there with the rise of very far right rhetoric, rhetoric in Ireland, the way that, you know, Middle Eastern, Northern African men are spoken about. Um, and I think that highlights that there's, there is that intersectional nature to all of this, because I think it, it very much serves kind of the establishment for people who are at the bottom of that economic ladder to point fingers to blame immigrants. Um, and, you know, for the housing crisis, for example, and that is just not the case, but it shows how, you know, that kind of, Economic oppression due to capitalism is very interlinked then with white supremacy and, and that all of these kind of systems are interlinked and, and interwoven. And there might be a point where somebody is on board with kind of one element of of that, that you can then kind of maybe help them to understand why actually Palestinian liberation is is a cause that is relevant to all of us. Um, because all of these forms of oppression that we all face are actually connected. And and it is interesting when you draw that along and, and important that we think about um, the way in which, you know, our economic system, which in which this oppression um, is central to it geopolitically and in, in terms of, you know, people say, you know, why is the US backing Israel so much? And it's not just, you know, notional cultural affinity and, and you know historic connections it is directly that israel serves a purpose as a 
as a uh, watch guard of the US in in you know the Middle East and has been supported on that basis and and the um idea you know again when you go back to our economic system of capitalism of you know exploitation that that damages us all you know and and that we're all um affected by an economic system that doesn't value well-being that doesn't value people's health mental health and and psychologically i think it's very interesting and very important i think there's a huge i see anyway and i get a lot from people like you know gabber mate and others who are you know coming at this kind of critique of our current economic system and and war or not just war so you know uh, apartheid and yeah. genocide highlighting that actually our our the whole economic system that we have the social system like we are all being made sick yeah. by it yeah and and you know there's i think there's a huge value and and as a psychologist i'd be interested to hear kind of your thoughts on that absolutely i definitely agree and i think you know, it's very important that we do not pathologize kind of suffering and psychological distress that is a result of deprivation or in the case of Palestinians of displacement and of genocide. Um, you know, I think that often the way that we kind of formulate or a lot of the psychological frameworks we use to think about about um, emotional distress or you know, psychological disorders, as, as they're often termed, uh, that's quite a Western and often quite a capitalist kind of lens and that there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of other ways that we can be looking at this. Um, one way to formulate, which I think is is really relevant in the case of, of Palestine particularly, but, but just generally, uh, uh, going back to what you were saying, is something called the power threat meaning framework. So this kind of moves away from a more traditional, um, maybe medical kind of um, formulation of distress and, and, and instead of asking kind of, what's wrong with you it asks what's happened to you yeah so it's interested in how power is operating in your life what kind of threats that power poses to you what is the meaning of that experience for you what kind of threat response or kind of survival mechanism are you using and i think it's it's very clearly um it very clearly understands that the distress is rooted in a wider context of social injustice and 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 social inequality um, and I think in the case of Palestine as well, we we should be formulating not just on kind of a symptom level and, and talking about the the kind of trauma responses that we might see among Palestinian people, but also integrating an awareness of the root cause of that suffering and, and really maintaining always a, 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 an eye on that and a lens on that, which in this case is the settler colonialist violence and the material impact it has on the day to day life of Palestinians. And, and again, that idea that what's happening in Palestine has this kind of intergenerational impact, that it's not just the current generation or the previous generation who experienced this violence that are going to be impacted, but there's a you know an ongoing impact to future generations as well. Um, and I think when we think about it that way, we can also see that the solution is not individualistic or isolated, but it should be a kind of collective or community kind of solution or approach. And I think that's relevant here as well, like in the context that you were just talking about, particularly for um, Palestinian people. Yeah, and, and the the question um, that that often comes up is, and people are really struggling with, and th- you know, is how, for example, can European countries um, like Germany, um, you know, the the US, for example, 
um, a lot of people think, you know, just wonder how when these governments are committed to human rights, their leaders are not, um, uh, well, that we know of anyway, psychopaths. And um, and I know there's a whole pejorative, uh, you know, analysis and questioning around the use of that word, but um, and the concept. But th- you know, they're they're human beings, and and how can they justify this level of suffering and atrocity and um, on a human level? Uh, and how can they make those decisions that they know are causing? the deaths of thousands of children and how did they justify that psychologically? How did they deal with that? How did they do it, do you think? Or is it just they have shut themselves down to the point at which they make these decisions? And um, I couldn't say for sure without kind of sitting down and, <laughs> and talking to them um, in depth. But my guess is that, like you said, I think things get shut down, emotions get, get shut off. Um, and a lot of the kind of like human response, like you said, is kind of repressed in a way. Um, I also think when we exist in a system that dehumanizes us as, as a capitalist system does and, and as all the ways that oppression is enacted on us, it does kind of dehumanize us. And when we dehumanize somebody, it makes it much easier to justify violence against them. And I think that there's kind of a broader issue of of people becoming dehumanized, but like particularly when it comes to Palestine, like again, we see a lot of the language that's used, um, particularly by Zionist leaders, is very dehumanizing, like talking about human animals. Um, and I think that, that that type of dehumanizing language, that kind of separation or that 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 tendency to to other people um allows us maybe to shut off emotionally from them when you lose some kind of emotional connection from them and, and, and it's easier to justify violence against them. It's easier to witness it. I don't yeah, have an I, answer, but... Sorry? No, I don't have an exact answer to that. Yeah, question. yeah. Yes. I, I think you're right. In, in there, there has to be that level of, I think, dehumanizing. And, and we've seen that down through history, you know, the creation of the other and, and the othering of... Uh, people we see it from you know recipients of welfare to those who live in social housing this constant um you know stigmatizing othering um racialization you know the history of um modern industrial societies has always been another and and um that systems used to stay and privilege uses to stay in power the age-old divide and conquer but i do think you're right there is that dehumanizing the idea and ideas as well that for example you know hamas were using all these uh people as human shields and this idea that um you know even you know every hamas person is every palestinian is a, is a hamas person is, yeah. is and even the notion of hamas itself and uh, is this you know it created the narrative is created that they're a terrorist tight-knit army when you know there are multiple forms of governance and within Hamas itself different um groups and this idea somehow that they have I, I'm really struck by the how they convinced people that you know Israel's right to self-defense meant that they could basically massacre Palestinians mm-hmm. how is that made and and there's no um parallel then right to self defense of palestinians who are being bombed how is that one you know that narrative convinced people convinced of that how the you know the logic behind that because it seems if you actually step back that's completely illogical 
I think on the one hand, it's maybe again going back to that kind of uh, the the way that we frame what's actually happening and the incorrect um, or lack of of use of the correct terminology um, to understand this as a settler colonial colonialist state of of Israel um, and a Zionist state, and I think that there's a lot of effective propaganda that mm. happened and that people don't tend to actually see the broader context of what's happening in Palestine and what has been happening for generations now. Um, and so I think the people don't realize that actually Israel cannot defend itself against a population that it is illegally occupying and depressing. Like that is not a, and um, that's not something that, you know, is possible, but when people don't have that kind of perspective on it, that what's happening is occupation. They don't maybe understand why this idea of right to self-defense by Israel is, is incorrect. Um, I also think that, you know, racism plays a huge role in this. Like, mm. you know, that in the West, there are many racist ideas and tropes that are held um, against Middle Eastern people, against Muslim people. You know, there's been an effective campaign of of kind of Islamophobic sentiment and, and propaganda that's been, you know, pushed for many, many years. And and I think it goes back to that dehumanization that there's a tendency maybe to see Palestinian people and to see Muslim people as as kind of other. Um, the kind of tropes we have, for example, about about Muslim men as being maybe sexually violent and, and how that plays into some of the resistance we see of, of accepting refugees in Ireland. And you know, I think all these things are again, they're all kind of interlinked. Um but I think yeah, ultimately, maybe some of the racist biases that are held, whether that's consciously or not, um, by not only leaders, but but by people in general in the West. And that kind of um, allows and and um, condones some of the violence that happens. And, and in terms of then from a psychological perspective, how you mentioned earlier about, you know, engaging with individuals, being curious, but in terms of messaging and you know, political messaging, campaigning messaging, what do you think are the messages or ways, the language we can use that can counter that? Um, I think focusing on kind of the humanity of it all, um, remembering that these are people with lives and hopes and desires and dreams and feelings and histories, um, the same as we have, I think the way that we that is reported, we need to be careful about the language we use. I would also say that sometimes there's a tendency in our in our um, desire to kind of connect with or humanize people that we end up describing them in terms that we see as being um, desirable or important. Like we, you know, we talk about like doctors were killed or something, and this idea yeah. that extraordinary or special in order to be mourned, but that actually everybody is, every life is important, and every life is is worth protecting and and saving um i think if we focus on you know that these are our people who are deserving of protection and and who have the right to resist there i think that's important yeah i i completely agree i think that's um focusing on the human and every every human life is valuable and that of course is something that has has been made the argument around you know, the amount of children who've been killed and again we go to children you know almost as a prioritization over adults but there is you know there is definitely there is a truth to that in terms of their vulnerability um 
I, I do think that's also a way of, of some people trying to get people to connect with it, that, okay, they're not going to connect with some adult, but at least they might connect with a child. And, they, yeah. and um, there is that. And it is incredible how they have managed to, again, lessen the value of Palestinian children. It is, you know, that dehumanizing. They have been successful in that yeah. at a level in terms of... Um, you could say amongst governments, some governments, but in, in the other way, they haven't. And when we look at, for example, the overwhelming majority of the UN, we look at the massive global demonstrations that they actually haven't been successful. And there's been a an assertion back from people, ordinary people and many governments that actually Gazan children and Gazans have equal life to everybody. Yeah. And I think that's true that actually what, what's happening at a, an institutional level or a government level is not necessarily representative of how people really do feel on the ground. About yeah, it. that we see that that the that the the people, particularly in Ireland, the Irish people, are unequivocally behind the Palestinian cause, um, and that we want not a, a ceasefire. And I think it's also important, you know, again, when we talk about the kind of the the language we use, and when we look to the future, obviously a ceasefire is crucially important at the moment. But but again, I think. A ceasefire implies there's a war happening and it doesn't necessarily take into account again the kind of broader context of the pro- the kind of ultimate project of the settler colonialist state and the other forms of violence that are enacted by displacing Palestinians and colonizing their land. The, there's a Palestinian writer, um, Rasha Abdul Hadi, and she she terms this a kind of um, a quieter or a milder genocide that's happening always in the background. And yeah. they'll look away from the violence or if the violence ceases. That, that this is another way that, you know, Palestinians are being annihilated and, and are being denied their um their right to their their land. And so I think um being able to be clear as well in, in what our demands actually are, that not only do we obviously want an immediate ceasefire, but we are also on the liberation of Palestinian people and we advocate advocate for their right to resist oppression and occupation. And I think you know, particularly in an Irish context, that sentiment is there that people do want that. Um, and so I think it goes back again to, to what I said before about the importance maybe of community, of connection in this, that while it might be really easy to feel disheartened by the kind of political response to this, that there is a lot of strength in um, in numbers and there's a lot of strength in connecting and, and finding a group and in activism as well. And I would really encourage people like your actions do have important consequences. Like we can actually do something about this if we really band together. And I think, you know, particularly from a psychological perspective, I, you know, I think there's a need for psychologists to be able to advocate against this injustice and to engage in activism as actually a form of trauma prevention. Um, you know, I think, you know, the personal, as they say, is political. And I think as therapists, as psychologists, we're very comfortable in the personal I'm not so sure of where we stand in the political. And actually, I think that this is a time where we need to to speak up. We all need to speak up um, and we can't kind of remain neutral in the face of, of what's happening. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And having you know, been an activist for over 20 years between anti-war and social justice issues, um, there was many different factors that that drove me or le- led me along a path into activism and, and engagement and many, much of it, you know, there's trauma and all that there that that leads you into paths of questioning society, of, of being angry about society and 
wanting to change it and and but regardless of the factors that that lead you to there i have always found that engaging in activity in acting in coming together as you said earlier that it is the the way in which like when you when you walk down and with you know thousands of other people or you stand even with one or two other people holding um a poster up you know taking some form of action you feel for that moment lighter in yourself you feel connected in way that it's something it, it's impossible to describe and um i always remember joking with other people who who were um psychologists whatever you know that activism was the best form of therapy and that yeah um and not to discount therapy i've done therapy as well and i think that's really really important um but i do think that there's something in the collective yeah. and that's what we are collective human beings you know we come together that gives us something a strength to continue and a um um just something more you you feel something beyond yourself that that kind of carries you through i i definitely agree i i totally agree and you know as a therapist i i kind of think you know i'm saying this i don't think therapy is the answer right now like i don't think you know what's happening is a collective trauma we are all feeling what's the impact of what's happening it's happening you know in a, in a way vicariously at least to us all and so the answer i think the solution is also collective it's also um you know rooted in community and in in being able to come together and i think like we were saying earlier it can feel maybe disheartening when the kind of desires and and sentiments of of the people around us are not being reflected in government action but i think that it's important for us as well to stay very steadfast in that and also you know when we look at what's happening in gaza it's not only accounts of suffering but there's also narratives of incredible courage and yeah. kind of unwavering determination and, and an incredible amount of humanity like when we spoke earlier again about particularly the way men are maybe discussed or, or or um kind of treated in the media like we see such incredible daily acts of bravery from the men of gaza and such incredible compassion kindness and you know connection and i think we need also need to kind of honor that hold a space for that recognize that as well that not only is there obviously grief and there's you know we have to bear witness as well to the kind of the very real and devastating impact of the violence but also to hold a space for the the hope and the courage that we see absolutely and then there's some really interesting and engaging and uplifting like poetry mm. um spoken word you, you can hear people you know different palestinians who are um on social media you know talking about their situation and speaking so um inspiringly and and um just powerfully and, and showing that you know the the resistance the the challenging and their hope and they're holding on to hope and, and as you say the importance of bearing witness to that for all of us yeah um it would be great, I think, if all therapists uh, were like you. So you ended the therapy session and say, is there anything else you want to say or talk about? But just before you go, you know, the best form is get out and uh, there's a protest next week. I'm sure I'll see you there. Um. <laughs> I think it's important. I think we should yeah, become more more politically engaged. Yeah, it's really interesting to, to see that in terms of psychologists. And you mentioned that earlier, you know, maybe just to finish up that yeah. that the the whole theory practice of psychology is a very individual um, theory practice. It's all about the individual, the one-on-one conversation. Whereas what you're doing is taking a different approach and 
Um, do you see this growing within psychology as, as an approach, as engagement? I hope so. Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, and just where, like, kind of what psychological theories or, or kind of, um, I know you mentioned, um, I say you didn't mention, but actually when on in terms of your work, I know that you, you talked about a feminist psychodynamics and I'd be interested just maybe a little briefly kind of what are those um, theories and frameworks that kind of say, okay, psychology has to be, or not has to be, but, mm-hmm. you know, has parts of collective as well as just the individual. Yeah, I do think it's growing. I think that, the, like I said before, I think there's some uncertainty in the field about what is our role in this, because mm. as a therapist, I mean, traditionally, you are very neutral, you're very unbiased, you yeah. don't necessarily bring all of yourself into the into the room, the client, maybe, t- you know, the, there's a, 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 an argument for the client kind of not knowing your political affiliation and your political beliefs or, you know, not knowing those things about you. Um, but I actually think that's really important for creating safety in in the room like when you're working with somebody who has kind of a minoritized or stigmatized identity or experience i think they have to know where you stand to be able to actually feel safe with you um and i think it is becoming more common that therapists are becoming maybe more vocal about where they stand um you know there's more research coming out and also more kind of practice happening around um you know psychology counseling psychology and social justice and where does that fit and how do we mm. all both as therapists and as advocates when one is quite active and one is maybe quite um non-directive or a little bit more more um kind of holding back um and yeah I, I do kind of a lot of my practice would be informed by feminist psychotherapy which is very much of the view that you know the, the personal is political and um, that the idea is that you want to very explicitly break down the kind of power imbalance between you and the client, that you want to be open about, you know, who you are, where, where you're coming from, what your own kind of intersectional identities are, and that the client knows that and, and they can kind of respond to that. And also that you are kind of making the client aware and bringing in an awareness of these kind of systemic issues and the way that the client's distress, you know, while not only maybe comes from individual experiences family experiences their own personal stuff is constructed and is maintained by the system that we're in for example you know a a patriarchal system and how that impacts on Mm. the mental health of of a female client coming in or um you know what is the impact for you know clients who have identities that are like i said kind of minoritized or stigmatized and i think that's an important thing like i personally i feel it does a disservice to the client and to the work not to not to bring that in and and I think that we can end up being maybe a little bit pathologizing if we focus only on the individual when actually, you know, sometimes the reactions we're having are a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation that we're in or abnormal nearly kind of society that we're part of. Um, so I think it's becoming a little bit more mainstream or maybe I'm just in a little bit of a bubble with it. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's important. Yeah, no, I really think it, it's so because there's so much um, psychology has to, to offer. And unfortunately, you know, the dominant, I really, the dominant kind of, you hear psychologists interviewed on the, the media all the time. And they're just like banging my head when they talk about, you know, the individual and, and whatever particular disorder, pathology they have. And you're just going, oh, my God, will you just once say, and society has a major contribution to this particular um you know, anxiety, trauma, depression, whatever it is, and that actually we have a sick society that's making people sick. And 
I can't wait till I hear you on um, RT Radio, man. <laughs> you know, actually going, do you know what? There's a very different way of looking at this and we really have been looking at the wrong causes uh, rather than individually pathologizing. It's the society and economy we need to pathologize. I agree. And I think when we look at Palestine as maybe a bit of a case study, that's very evident. Like the the trauma, the distress that Palestinian people are experiencing is a very specific cause. Um, and so we cannot, you know, this can't be approached or treated in, in an individual kind of isolated way. It has to be a collective communal response. Yeah. 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 And, it, yeah, and, and I just think their thought came into my head. Imagine if, um, you know, on over the the holidays that uh, this the Christmas that every so often RT would take a ten minute pause in its programming and say we just want to do a little reflection on Gaza and how difficult it is and how people must be feeling and thinking of them rather than just pretending. You know, because you feel then okay, at least I'm not mad. At least I'm not like you know thinking thinking about this all the time and that there would be that space, as you say, you know, to reflect. And, and it, again, not just RTE, but, you know, all the, the media, you see that it, media and how it's it's run is not run actually for people's well-being. It's, it's you know, on so many commercial agendas and to sustain the system as it is. Um, but I suppose that's the power of social media then yeah. in terms of offering an alternative space that where people can do this. And there's a bit of a battle going on in, in not a bit, there's a major battle, of course, because social media is, corporate controlled as well and and what's going on there about the censoring in terms of palestine mm-hmm. um and which points to of course a need for a collective social a collectively owned social media yeah. non-corporatized mm-hmm. um meg any final thoughts just for people in terms of you know how we go forward and how we people can think about both their own activism sustaining it which is really probably the most yeah. kind of contribution we can make i think maybe just to touch on what you said there that like it can feel so strange and unsettling to, on the one hand, know that this is happening and on the other hand, see life going on as normal. And that's a really odd experience to have um, to kind of have such a tension between those two things. Um, and I think that's why, again, just being able to talk to other people about it, being able to express and voice what's happening um, is really important that you know, this is going on and, and whether or not it's being reported to us in an accurate way, we know what's happening and and we need to be speaking out about that. And as well to I suppose to acknowledge how we're feeling. Like I've been saying, this is an incredibly painful thing. It's very distressing for people. It can feel very overwhelming. Um and I think in that sometimes it can become isolating. But I think what we need to do is acknowledge those feelings and reach out to other people, connect with other people. And allow ourselves, if we have to, the time to maybe to grieve and and to experience that sadness and to kind of process that. But to get back out there then after we've done that and to make sure that we have people who can kind of help us with that and do that with us. How do you grieve and process? I think taking time to actually sit with the emotional experience of it. Like I think so often we push away experiences that are not comfortable and it isn't comfortable to grieve to feel sadness but it's important like i said before all our emotions really do have an actual function to them and if we can kind of think about sadness as being something that's telling us actually something important is happening you know what what is going on means something to me and i think acknowledging that um acknowledging the grief and being able to try and 
stay with it for a little while, feel it, let it let it pass through, not just block it out. Very, very uh, good advice, and and that's a challenge to us all. <laughs> An easy thing, and it's a little bit abstract maybe yeah i don't think it's abstract at all i think it's very real but i think it's extremely challenging you know extremely challenging not to you know just block and push it away um and to sit with it because it is uncomfortable um but i think that is what we need to do and uh, as you've said and it is finding ways um that people can talk to each other as you said that's the most important thing finding people to talk to this about and taking the action and finding different ways um to take action and there is lots of uh, ways people can and shout out to the Ireland uh, Palestine Solidarity Campaign and people could check out there is there will be stuff going on in the coming weeks as a vigil I know tomorrow um, and then Irish um, Psychologists for Palestine which I'm so excited that uh, you've come together and the work that you're doing and I look forward to engaging getting involved you guys have a session um, this coming Saturday if that's right um, um, pod- 22nd so far. yeah Sorry, Friday. Yeah. yeah, and that like that could be a space for you to do those things that we were speaking about to connect with other people to kind of acknowledge what's happening. Um, we're going to be running these kind of ongoing support groups essentially for people to yeah. drop in, um, discuss what's going on for them, their reaction to it, just kind of find a little bit of comfort and solidarity um, with other people. Yeah, brilliant. Sorry, I shouldn't have described it as a session. It's no. A- okay. <laughs> it's a, not a therapy session but it, yeah yeah well the other people might have thought it was a session like you know not a oh. <laughs> one of those sessions but um no the, you described yeah it's exactly a group where people can just come in and engage and listen and, and think about and as you said uh, i think it's really really interesting and thank you for organizing it um and hopefully there will be more but i really think your perspective offers so much and i think people really connect with it as well because it is that human side and so I look forward to people can check you out. I know you're on Instagram. Yes, we are. Um, Irish Psychologist for Palestine. And yeah, follow and, and if people are interested in um, getting involved. Yeah, please just reach out to us. You can just send us a DM if you'd like to become involved in the group. Great, great. As a, yeah, that's that's really, really good initiative. And it's so, uh, so important, as I said. And listen, um, hope all our listeners have a great break. And if they are, and if they're working over the Christmas, thank you. And um, to all the people who will be uh, doing incredible work over the Christmas um, in terms of our hospitals, transport, all the things that keep going, um, hospitality, and also just, yeah, thank you so much to our listeners for the support during the year. And these conversations are so important, and and I really do wish you well in having the conversations and sustaining our, our activism and engagement um, and it is so important to connect with others around this. We aren't alone very much, are not alone. Um, and come off social media as well for a bit and engage in, in with real people around us, which is so important because it, it is trying to consume us as well as offering us a space to engage. And um, yeah, so listen, thank you to Tony as well. Tony Groves Production, done incredible work all year. And listen, we hope we will talk to you in the new year then. And for another year of a continued engaged um, activism, thoughts, discussion. um, And thank you so much to my guest, Meg Ryan. Thank you for joining me today in Reboot. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you all very, very soon.